This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 1st, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. On matters of conscience, who governs, and who owns your successes and your failures, and what does it truly mean to tell some authority a short, simple no? Historically, it's at best a mixed bag. Jim Otteson is a professor of economics at Wake Forest University. He spoke at Cato Club 200 in October on some critical moments in the history of liberty. It's a great honor to be here, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for the honor of talking to you at the Cato Club 200 retreat. I'd like to thank Peter and the other organizers who brought me out here. Um, And I'd also like to thank you not only for the time tonight, but also for the work that you have done to support a free society. You know, these are perilous times for supporters of a free society. Maybe not the most perilous times there have ever been. Um, Last week, I was in China um, at a conference on Adam Smith. Just think about that for a second. It's a week-long conference for graduate students and some new PhDs um, called Adam Smith's Enlightened World. And I was uh, one of the speakers, and I led some uh, seminars. Um, This is also, you may know, some of you may know that in just a couple of weeks, the National Congress of the Communist Party is taking place in China, in Beijing. That happens every five years. So this was right before, in the run-up to that, there are Communist Party officials everywhere. All of the seminars we had had Communist Party officials and security guards monitoring what we were saying, listening to what the students were saying. That takes some bravery, doesn't it? Um, I hear a lot of my students, and I'm sure you've heard of students uh, here in the United States who talk about you know, words or violence and, uh, oh, I'm pressed. Um, those are students who are actually risking something. Um, students in, the, in China wanting to know about a market economy and what Adam Smith said. So sometimes it's good to put things in perspective. And I thought it might be worthwhile for a few minutes to put our current troubles into a little bit of historical perspective. So if you allow me to do that just for a few minutes. Peter, you said no more than two hours. Was that what it was? <laughs> I'm a professor. We like to talk. So I'd like to begin, if you will allow me, um, by asking you to consider one instructive and really spectacular example from the ancient world, and that's Socrates. Socrates was put to death in 399 BC. This is a date, by the way, that I want all of my students and now all of you to remember forever. If you don't know that date, sear it into your brain, don't ever forget it. 399 BC, Socrates was accused of impiety. And he was put to death for it. Now, Socrates was not the only person in ancient Greece to be charged with impiety. Indeed, in ancient Athens, uh, charges of impiety were all the rage. Uh, About 50 years before Socrates' trial, Anaxagoras was charged with impiety uh, by his fellow Athenian citizens, apparently because he he, uh, he denied that the sun was a god. He thought it was just a hot rock. Um, But rather than face execution, Anaxagoras decided to flee across the Aegean, until his death in 428. And similarly, some 70 years after Socrates' trial, um, the death of Alexander the Great in 323 precipitated an outbreak of anti-Macedonian feeling among the Athenians. And Aristotle, who was a Macedonian and who had been Alexander the Great's tutor, by the way, when I was a graduate student, one of my professors, I shouldn't mention this, are we off the record here? I don't know. One of my professors said that we should, um, we should refer to Alexander as Alexander the Significant, because we don't want to say great. Aristotle was the tutor of Alexander the Great. Uh, but when Alexander died in 323, 
Um, again, there was an sorry, there was an anti-Macedonian outbreak of feeling, and so Aristotle was also duly charged with impiety. Like Anaxagoras, rather than face the possible consequences, Aristotle decided to accept exile from Athens. Uh, didn't do him much good. He died the next year. Um, but Aristotle is said to have remarked uh, that the reason he accepted this voluntary banishment from Athens was because he wished, quote, to prevent the Athenians from committing a second sin against philosophy. Rather convenient. <laughs> but return to Socrates. So Socrates decided not to flee. Even though, as Plato reports in, the, in one of the dialogues, the Crito, Socrates' friend had organized an escape for him. They had bribed the guards, and they had uh, worked out an underground railroad trip for him to northern Greece and to freedom. Socrates refused. During his trials, as some of you may know, during his trial before the Athenian Senate, Socrates was unrepentant. He was even defiant. He told the senators that what they decided to do with him was a matter of indifference. He would continue to examine his own and other people's lives, no matter what they did, and to the last day of his life, whenever that should be. And as Plato uh, in the Apology reports, Socrates having said, the unexamined life is not worth living. So now some have argued that Socrates was just an arrogant old fool. Socrates had compared himself to Achilles. He liked, likened his gadfly activists to the uh, activities to the labors of Hercules. I mean, just imagine that scene, this broken down old man comparing himself to two of the greatest heroes that informed the Greek identity. But whatever we might think of the prudence of that strategy, that argumentative strategy, there can be no question, I think, that Socrates is a model for at least one of the cardinal virtues, courage. Socrates was willing to die for the cause of what we might think today of intellectual independence and freedom of thought, and die he did. Now, perhaps the example of Socrates should have taught us a lesson. Perhaps it should have taught us not to punish intellectual innovators, and instead to nurture and encourage fresh, new thinking, maybe even independence of thought. Unfortunately, however, we have not always learned that lesson we have continued to charge people with and try them for impiety. Now, the gods towards which we charge people with impiety may have changed, but the charges remain the same. You do not believe the correct things, and we are going to punish you for it. So consider, perhaps, a less well-known example. I'd like to talk about this person in particular. This is someone you should get to know if you don't know. Um, in the early part of the 17th century, there came into existence in England a group of people called the Levelers. You heard of the Levelers before? Now, I know Peter just mentioned them, but before that, had you heard of them? Let me tell you about the greatest of them. His name was John Lilburn. John Lilburn, or Freeborn John, as he was called, was born in Greenwich, England in either 1614 or 1615, and he was an agitator almost from the beginning. In 1630, he began an apprenticeship to a Puritan cloth maker in London. And shortly thereafter, so he was only about 15 years old, um, he joined the radical opposition to King Charles I. In 1637, at the tender age of just 22, he smuggled from Holland outlawed copies of Jan John Bastwick's account of the punishment that Bastwick had received at the hands of the bishops. But one of Lilburn's accomplices betrayed him to the archbishops, and so Lilburn was arrested and tried before the ghastly Star Chamber. Remember the Star Chamber? You've heard of the Star Chamber? 
This was a body that Lilburn, that Lilburn detested and whose existence he protested. When Lilburn was brought to the bar before its judges, so consider the scene. The judges sat, there were, there were these large wooden panels. The judges sat at the top of them wearing black robes and black hoods. And you walked in, they were about eight feet above you. You walked in and there was a wooden bar. You heard the phrase, the bar. So when we talk about the, being admitted to the bar, you had to walk up to the bar to address the judges. And the first thing you had to do when you got there was bow. When Lilburn walked in, reborn John refused to bow. As far as we know, he's the first person who ever refused to bow. Lilburn explained to the judges that as a freeborn Englishman, he was, as he put it, the peer and equal of both the bishops and the judges of the Star Chamber. There was therefore no reason for him to show the deference they demanded. Let's think about that for a second. Now for that snub to their authority, he was fined, he was publicly whipped, he was pilloried, and finally imprisoned, receiving over time increasingly harsh punishment because he refused to stop denouncing the presumed authority of the bishops and the judges. Lilburn remained in prison until he was finally liberated by the Long Parliament in 1640 after a speech on his behalf by Oliver Cromwell, a man who would one day imprison Lilburn too. I'll come back to that in just a second. And after he was released, Lilburn became the famous, or perhaps infamous, depending on your perspective, leader of the Levelers. This is a group of political agitators seeking extension of the franchise and other democratic rights. Now, they were called Levelers not because they sought to level property holdings or level income or anything like that. That's not why they were called levelers, but rather because they wanted to equalize the legal privileges and rights of all citizens. Very different claim. No one, they argued, was by nature or by God entitled to less authority over his own life than anyone else. And no one was justified in asserting authority over anyone else without the latter's willing consent. So Lilburn was tireless and fearless even as he was put in the stocks, Lilburn, Lilburn issued one pamphlet and one speech after another, denouncing the presumed authority of the bishops, of the Star Chamber, of Parliament, and then even of Cromwell. So, what do you think happened? He was again arrested. He spent most of August 1645 to August 1647 in prison, but he remained unbowed. On May 1st, 1649, while imprisoned yet again, he published a pamphlet arguing that people had a right to their private consciences by birth, not by pleasure of government. Furthermore, that the authority of each individual's conscience was equal to that of anyone else's authority over his conscience. That therefore a person's religious beliefs were only his own business and that therefore no one was entitled to answer anyone uh, to, to answers about anybody else's beliefs. Lilburn's message resonated. On May 2nd, 1649, the next day, some of the troops under Cromwell, that's Cromwell, refused to follow Cromwell's orders to march on the levelers. Cromwell said, go get the levelers, and they refused to march. This defiance inspired mutiny of, of, of yet further troops until by May 14th, two weeks later, some 1,200 troops had stopped taking orders from Cromwell, demanding instead the release of Lilburn. This was the last straw for Cromwell. Just after midnight on May 14th, Cromwell and a contingent of men who were still loyal to him surprised and crushed what remained of the army sympathetic to the levelers 
effectively putting an end to the levelers as an organized political movement. They killed all 1,200 of the traitorous soldiers. Lilburn was then publicly tried for treason. He defended himself. He argued to the jury in defiance of the explicit instructions of the judges that as the judges, peers, and equals, the members of the jury were empowered to judge not only the facts, but can you guess, maybe Roger Pallon can, the law itself. What's the phrase for that? What do we call that today? If you ever want to get out of jury duty, let's slip out of your mouth that you've heard of something called jury nullification. You're gone. He told the jurors that they could judge the law itself. To Cromwell's consternation, Lilburn was acquitted and promptly returned to denouncing Cromwell's increasing imperiousness. Cromwell was so infuriated that in 1653, he rearrested Lilburn, tried him again for treason a second time, and again Lilburn defended himself, and again he was acquitted. This second acquittal led to, acquittal led to a large popular demonstration in support of Lilburn, uh, symbolized by thousands of sympathizers wearing the leveler's characteristic sea green ribbon. So if you can tell on the sides of the slides, I think that's my approximation of the color of the ribbons that's, that symbolized um, the leveler movement. They wore it on their hats and their clothing. This expression of support for Lilburn sufficiently worried Cromwell that he decided to keep Lilburn in prison despite the acquittals. Kept him in prison anyway. Four years later, so he languished in prison for four years. Four years later, in 1657, with his health failing, Lilburn was granted parole to visit his wife, Elizabeth. Exhausted from years of imprisonment and torture in his, and he was tortured, in his fight for liberty, he died in her arms at the age of 43. Somebody really ought to make a movie about him. Let me know if you want to buy my screenplay. <laughs> Kidding, I don't have one. Now, Lilburn was no philosopher, but his arguments fo formed a surprisingly coherent philosophy of individualism, from which uh, he derived several specific policies. Let me just mention a few. They included the right to be free of arbitrary seizure, the right uh, to a trial by jury, the right to face one's accusers in open court. He also advocated free trade and private property, and he called for an abolition of legal economic privileges, like state-enforced monopolies. He denounced the Levant Company, for example, their chartered monopoly to trade with the Middle East, because he argued that the right to trade with whomever one wished was one of mankind's natural rights. So Lilburn was one of the earliest advocates of what, we would come to, what would come to be recognized as classical liberalism, defending private property some 50 years before John Locke, and free markets and free trade 150 years before Adam Smith. By the way, neither Locke nor Smith cite Lilburn. Interesting. So when Lilburn had been brought before the Star Chamber in 1637, he stood his ground, asserting his equal right as an individual to freedoms anyone else enjoyed. And in 1641, Lilburn saw the Star Chamber abolished. That, ladies and gentlemen, was a great moral leap forward, elevating the individual, even the low, the mean, the disenfranchised individual, to the status of a moral agent equal in dignity to those in the favored classes. The conception of morality and human personhood, this conception, spread and eventually gave rise to many of the institutions um, we today in the West take for granted, especially our students. If no one, regardless of class or family or wealth, has any justified authority over anybody else, then individuals no longer need to beg leave from their superiors to own property, to select lines of work, 
to trade or exchange or cooperate with others, to worship and associate as they judge fit. Each person's successes or failures in life are fundamentally their own responsibility, even if, of course, it requires cooperating with willing others. What results from that? Individuality, diversity, and various kinds of inequality, except legal equality. All of that arise, and with it, in the subsequent centuries, the unprecedented growth in human accomplishment, material prosperity, longevity, health, nutrition, many of the things that the Cato Institute and others so able, ably demonstrate for us, we have seen these things. Now, I don't want to suggest that Lilburn is the only person who gave rise to all of this, but there's, um, I think he's a neglected figure in the history of this tradition. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to suggest that this conception of human moral agency that we saw in Lilburn and the, and the Levelers is a shiny example of the beauty. So the title of my talk had the word beauty in it. Of the beauty, both the moral and the aesthetic beauty, of liberty. The inspiring example of freeborn John drives that point home, and there are many other examples one might, uh, one might point to or adduce in history. But I'd also like to talk about the contrasting position. And that's a position that's dramatically illustrated by Reiner Maria Rilke's short poem, The Panther. Do you know that little poem? Short poem, The Panther. It tells of a beautiful and powerful panther that once free now sees the world from behind bars. Indeed, as Rilke says, behind a thousand bars. As Rilke tells us, the great cat's beauty and power rapidly decline, not because she grows older, but because her spirit is caged and thus defeated. Sooner than one could expect, the panther is, though alive, truly dead. Because behind the bars, she is no longer really a panther. Now, what do the panther's well-intended zookeepers say? Well, they might say that in the wild, her life is full of dangers. Nature can be dangerous and parsimonious and unforgiving, whereas the zookeepers are benevolent and protective. So although behind the bars, the panther's not free, at least she's safe and comfortable. Well, okay, they have a point. But the pampered and protected panther, I would say, is still a caged panther, and so not really a panther at all. Still, since the panther is not a full moral agent, perhaps you're inclined to value her freedom not very highly, and so perhaps you're inclined to think that what we might call a zookeeper morality, keep that phrase in mind, a zookeeper morality, is acceptable for her. Fair enough. But human beings are full moral agents. So the zookeeper morality is unacceptable for them. Living free is indeed uncertain and sometimes dangerous, and it does indeed involve, involve both success and failure. But both one's successes and one fa one's failures are one's own. They belong to you and me. And it is the true dignity of humanity to fully exercise all its abilities in striving and contending. As Calvin Coolidge, one of our greatest, if most unappreciated presidents, remember him? As he once said, unless people struggle to help themselves, no one else will or can help them. It is out of such struggle that there comes the strongest evidence of their true independence and nobility. And there is struck off a rough and incomplete economic justice, and there develops a strong and rugged character. It represents a spirit for which there could be no substitute. It justifies the claims that they are worthy to be free. Human beings, I contend, are capable of becoming worthy to be free. Human beings become noble. They become beautiful by the vigorous use of their faculties. And they become dignified when their lives are their own. 
when all the forced care and protection of others is taken away and when the bars are thrown open. Turning now just for a second to Lilburn and Liberty. We tend to think this is one of the documents that's in that five-volume thing that you bought, Peter, so if you open it, you'll see this. We tend to think that at the heart of liberty lies the ability to do what we want. Now, of course, that's limited by the similar freedom of others, but the idea is that liberty is about having the power to say yes. I'd like to suggest, however, that it is in fact the authority to say no that most powerfully exemplifies our moral agency. And it is when we, like freeborn John, refuse to bow that we assume our place as free, equal, and beautiful moral agents. Indeed, human liberty has historically developed, not gradually, I would suggest, but by great leaps. And in each of the great cases, it has been by some people, often at first just one person, saying no. No, I will not compromise what I believe. No, I will not acknowledge your authority over me. No, I will not accept your interpretation of my duty to God. No, you do not rule me. No, I am not your property. No, I am not less than human. No, your moral agency is not inherently superior to mine. No, I will not work for you. No, I will not pay your tributes. No, I will not marry you. No, I will not let you invade my privacy. No, I am not a second-class citizen. On the opposite side of this is the shameful and ugly fact that most of human history has been characterized by our relentless attempts to control one another. My God, are we meddling busybodies, aren't we? <laughs> Cast your mind's eye back over human history. How much of it is marked by the ugliness of one group of people trying to Mind, control, repress, redirect, manage, reform, re-educate, restrain, command, rule, dominate, bully, browbeat, humiliate, superintend, engineer, organize, supervise, govern, or nudge others. Yet almost all of the great and shining moments of human history are when someone stands up and says, No, you may have the power to coerce me, but I do not recognize your moral authority to do so. Now, today, our self-anointed superiors often justify their interposition into our lives on the grounds that they know what choices we should make to make our lives better. These Latter-day Puritans say, don't worry, we're here to help you. If we know that smoking and eating donuts and drinking 20-ounce sodas and starting taxi companies and serving the homeless your homemade food and braiding hair without a license and using an incandescent light bulb and not recycling and listening to an immoral speaker and reading Ayn Rand and Adam Smith and Reason Magazine and on and on and on and endlessly on. If we know all of these things are bad, it would be wrong not to intervene, right? Wrong. On the contrary, it is precisely this paternalistic meddling that shows others a profound, immoral, and I would argue, ugly disrespect. For it says, we do not believe you are competent to lead your life properly, so we shall undertake to do it for you. Now, that may be appropriate for children or for the mentally infirm, may be appropriate for zoo animals. It is an unacceptable imposition on the equal moral agency of adults. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that having a person in government serving as a regulation czar is an affront to everything the long and proud and beautiful history of liberty stands for. It is to our shame that we tolerate it.
Now, what exactly is this conception of moral agency? I could say a little bit more about it, but I won't say very much. Classically understood, I think it's a conception of humanity that conceives of human beings as, being these two, as comprising these two things, autonomy and independent judgment. It's first, possessing the power of choosing otherwise. That's what I mean by autonomy. What did you wear today? What did you eat today? To whose emails did you respond and to whose did you not respond? Did you get married? Did you not get married? Who did you date? In all of these cases and the countless other decisions that you make from small to large, you could have chosen otherwise. That doesn't mean that there wouldn't have been costs involved. Of course, there are costs and there are influences. But in every case, you could have chosen otherwise. And that's what we mean by autonomy. And I call this autonomy following Immanuel Kant. That's why I have that picture of him there. And that's precisely what gives human beings dignity. It's what elevates their status above that of non-human animals and inanimate objects. By making choices, one takes ownership of one's life. And one comes, therefore, to take responsibility for it. You make poor choices, you, are held, you should be held accountable for those choices in just the same way that, if you, that you should be rewarded if you make good choices. Now, the ability to choose otherwise logically implies the ability to say no to any proposal, and saying no is indeed perhaps, as I have suggested, the most exemplary act through which human beings can demonstrate their moral agency. Others may have power over us through superior force or threats of force, but when we can say no, we demonstrate our moral equality to those who would command, direct, or nudge us. By contrast, if I don't allow you to say no to my proposal, if I don't allow you to decline to be directed or regulated or restricted, I don't allow you to disobey my commands or my request for information about you, my tracking of your movements, my listening to your phone calls, reading your emails, my search of your person and property. In all of these cases, my disallowance of your ability to say no compromises your moral authority. It makes your moral agency less efficacious than mine, and indeed it subordinates it to mine. It creates a relationship resembling that of master and servant, not of peer and peer. But that is unbefitting a free person, and it is disallowed by a principle of equal moral agency. So a crucial aspect of our freedom, I would like to argue, is therefore the authority to say no. Saying no is often quite difficult. Others can be persuasive, as anybody who's been in contact with a pushy salesman or an authoritarian officer of the public or bullies or other these types that try to use intimidation to get what they want. TSA agent, that I, one of them that I encountered today, asked me if, she, if it would be all right if, I, if she searched my bag. I love it when they say, have a nice day, as if there's some choice. No choice. By the way, uh, when I was coming back from China in Detroit, <laughs> TSA agent said to me, they searched my bag because I had a bunch of books in one of my bags. And she searched it. And I said, what exactly is it you're looking for? And she said, well, we had to look at these books. And I said, are books not allowed in America anymore? And she said, well, books look just like bombs. <laughs> OK. So sometimes saying no can be difficult. But saying no is also a skill. And as a skill, it has to be practiced. In order to be vigorous, it must be practiced. And because saying no is so crucial to establishing the boundaries of ourselves, 
maintaining the integrity of our moral agency, it's especially important to remind ourselves and others that we do in fact possess this skill, that we should exercise it liberally. Thus, the proper response to bullies or others attempting to intimidate us is often, not always, but is often not to call on someone else to intervene. It is instead simply to say in an unequivocal and decisive way, no. No, you may not do that. No, I will not go with you. No, I will not answer your questions. Few acts more clearly and beautifully demonstrate the power of human moral agency than standing up and saying no. So to our actual and would-be czars, I would say this. Not even God believed that he should re restrict mankind's ability to choose only the right. When God created man, gave man free choice, which necessarily entailed the ability to choose the wrong. Well, if it was good enough for God, it's good enough for you, Cass Sunstein and Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> Now, that doesn't mean you can never help another person, but it does mean that you must respect others' agency when you undertake to do so. If they decide not to do what you want, what the, you want them to do, if they resist your impositions and your nudges, if they behave in the gloriously unpredictable way that free people do, you must respect them. They have the right to say no to you. And as we should all know by now, no means no. If you believe they're making a mistake, and even if they are in fact making a mistake, they deserve the respect to decide on their own anyway. So let me come to my conclusion. For my part, speaking for myself, I believe that liberty is too important to our moral agency and to our moral dignity for me not to try to figure out how I might personally contribute in however small a way I can to its unfolding moral arc. I take that as a personal moral duty, which I accept solemnly. If you are inclined to, to agree, what would be the best way for you not only to remember people like Socrates or Cato or Lilburn, but to honor their legacy? Well, by doing the same yourself. I would exhort you then, each of you, to look at the opportunities available to you and to seek out ways that you too might contribute in your own unique but indispensable way to the protection, preservation, and extension of the moral beauty of liberty. Perhaps this will entail your exercising your own power of saying no. Perhaps, like me, you'll decide to prosecute your own campaign of what I call guerrilla liberty. Uh, that's finding entrepreneurial and opportunistic ways to deny and even subvert the assumed authority of those who presume to superintend us. I'm not going to tell you any more about my guerrilla liberty campaign. Um, not only because the NSA and, I don't know, Uncoke My Campus are probably listening. I'm sure they are. Um, but as a student of Adam Smith and Friedrich Hayek, I believe in the power of decentralized, spontaneous order and division of labor. So I cannot know how you should expend your efforts. Maybe you yourself don't know yet. But I do know that your and my, our time on Earth is absolutely limited. And the threats to liberty are real and advancing. So let's get started right now and put every remaining minute we have to good use. Like all beautiful things, liberty is fragile, and a free society is rare indeed. They require continuous maintenance by those who appreciate their blessings. When they are threatened, however, as they are now, they require all hands on deck. That means me, that means you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we might not be successful, 
The forces that conspire against liberty are multiple and relentless. And I know that many in this room can personally attest that fighting for liberty carries risks. There are a lot of morally beautiful people in this room, aren't there? Right on. <laughs> but moral duty requires us to fight nonetheless. So ladies and gentlemen, there is a lot of ugliness in this world. And there's nothing uglier than coercion and paternalism. What we stand to gain then, not only for ourselves, but for all the other equal moral agents, including future souls on whom peaceful and prosperous civilizations will depend, is the priceless gift that people like Socrates and Cato and John Lilburn and so many others have spent their lives nurturing and protecting the exquisitely beautiful and precious treasure of freedom. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Jim Otteson is a professor of economics at Wake Forest University. He's author of several books. He spoke at Cato Club 200 in October. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>